Out podcast, we've talked a lot about the state of open debate in our culture. The public conversation these days frequently involves highly contentious and nasty arguments, and science is no exception. Michael Powell at the New York Times recently reported out one such example involving the naming of a telescope after a late NASA head and allegations of homophobia. Several of the scientists behind the movement to rename the telescope have issued a statement since the New York Times piece came out, arguing that Powell, quote, has attempted to transform a debate on the naming of JWST into one that raises personal issues involving Professor Olushei. I will link to the scientist statement at my substack, tarahenley.substack.com, so that listeners can read it in full. Today on the podcast, we'll hear from the astrophysicist at the center of this controversy. Hakim Olushei is the visiting Robinson Professor at George Mason University and the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. He's also the author of A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars. Hakim Olushei is my guest today on Lean Out. Hakeem, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. Really nice to have you on the program. We last spoke in 2021 about your memoir, which I do want to touch on today. Um, But first, I want to talk a a little bit about freedom of expression and open debate. Yeah, yeah. Why this is so important to the scientific process. You were recently at the center of a controversy covered in the New York Times right before Christmas. This had to do with a group of activist scientists who protested the naming of a telescope after the late NASA head James Webb, claiming he was a homophobic and oversaw the Lavender Scare, this moral panic in the mid-20th century that purged gay employees of the U.S. government. But first of all, for listeners who do not know, what is the James Webb Space Telescope? Uh, Well, this is the follow-on to the Hubble Space Telescope. It's bigger. It's focused on a different wavelength. It looks at infrared, whereas Hubble looked mostly at visible and ultraviolet. And that's necessary because Webb is designed to look into the very early universe. So many people have heard about cosmological redshift. So if there is some galaxy, you know, that's billions of light years away, even though the stars are emitting visible light, by the time that light reaches us, it's been stretched in the infrared. And the other thing infrared does is just like at sunset on Earth, right? The red light can make it straight through, whereas the blue light, the shorter wavelength light gets bounced out of, out of your uh, line of sight. So at sunset, the sun appears to be red because that's the light that's reaching your eye. Well, Red, infrared, longer wavelength light allows you to see through clouds of dust. So Webb can look at the stellar nurseries where new stars and new planets are being born and see them, whereas Hubble or other ground-based telescopes could not. 
Mm. And so this this fight over the telescope's name, I mean, you were a former education manager for NASA. Is this something NASA asked you to look into? Like, how did this come onto your radar? No, I brought it to NASA's attention, in fact. So I discovered this in 2005. There was a, a Forbes article with the title, uh, The Problem with Naming Observatories for Bigots. So when I read that article and realized it was a James Webb Space Telescope, you know, I just thought, oh, my goodness, this is insane. How could this be happening? So I decided to research into it more. And there were two places where I found more information. One was earlier that year in the stranger.com. Dan Savage had written an article Mm. and he was um, his article was initiated by a reader who had read Webb's Wikipedia page and said, hey, look, this guy allegedly did these things. Why are you naming a telescope after him? And so after seeing the Forbes article in that article, I went to Facebook where there was a group of astronomers. It was about equity and inclusion, right? And so they had already been talking about it for six months and everybody talked about it as if it was real and true. So when I started working at NASA in early 2017, I got the lay of the land for a couple of months. And then I said, oh, by the way, in that Facebook group, people kept saying someone should confront NASA, right? So that's what I did. I confronted them, not in a confrontational way. I basically said, hey, do you know about this? And to a person, no one knew about it. So the Mm. gentleman, his name is Gregory Robinson. He was, uh, he retired after the web was launched, but he was hanging around. He was the leader of the web telescope uh, project in terms of from NASA side, not the scientific principal investigator. And, you know, he said, Hakeem, give me everything you got. And when I gave it to him, he said, uh, all I see here is allegations. Would you mind looking into it and giving me a report? So I did. I looked into it and with NASA scientists, excuse me, NASA historians, NASA archivists and NASA librarians at three NASA centers, as well as a historian. It was a young man who was completing his uh, Ph.D. in history and he was doing it on Web. He was based in Huntsville, Alabama. So. Eventually, we discover, oh, everything that the, he's being accused of, which at the time was that he was this homophobe who who initiated and led the Lavender Scare, none of that was actually true. At the State Department, it was a gentleman named John Purifoy, and his secretary of state at the time was George Marshall. So what happens is you had this uh, – well, anyway, that's what happened. I'll, I'll give you the details if you want it, but basically – once I informed Gregory Robinson that, um, you know, he, he didn't do it, then, you know, at that point, NASA was pretty much done with it. They were like, oh, OK, if he had done it, we would need to put out a statement. But since he did not do it, you know, then, you know, let's mm. get back to putting this telescope in, in space. And so when I departed NASA at the end of July in 2019, I left behind 100 percent of my data. Right. And I wish I didn't have to do that because the stuff the Ph.D. guy gave me was so amazing. It was actual letters between Webb and other people. Uh, But I left it all behind. So I had to redo the research. Right. And so by the time, you know, and I also wanted to put a um, distance between myself and NASA before I actually published it again. Right now. And, And my plan was to publish it in a history journal. But colleagues just kept telling me, hey, you know, we're hearing about this. We're hearing about this. We're hearing about this. And so I thought, okay, I better put it out there and give everybody the good news that, hey, guess what? It's not true. So (laughs) we don't have to be, you know, reticent about the James Webb Space Telescope. It was a big misidentification. 
Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. I mean, you in the piece, in the medium piece that you're yeah. referring to, I want to just read a quote from that. As a black scientist from the deep South, who's had to navigate the shoals of a scientific establishment where I've not always felt welcome, I imagine how I would feel if faced with the equivalent a flagship national observatory named after someone who was accused of being a staunch racist and national enforcer of racial segregation. Thankfully, Webb was not the bigoted homophobe who led State Department witch hunts, as rumored. Um, So I don't want to go too far into the weeds on all of this. There's been a ton published on it. I'm going to link to a lot of this. But, But generally, this piece comes out. NASA's chief historian has since conducted its own investigation, reached the same conclusion, but it didn't end the controversy. Why not? Well, basically, I think is is the, um, you know, the activists, you know, they took it personally. So one of them I knew, I, I you know, one of them I knew very well because we're in the same research collaboration. And the other, you know, I had been acquainted with since 2009, right? And, uh, you know, I didn't know that they were like, had hung their hat on this. You know, I had no idea. I just knew about what I saw in 2015. Right. So immediately, you know, they, they reacted hostile. So they put out a blog piece. Right. And by the way, you know, they put out the blog piece with the title of the straights are here to save us. Okay. Mm. It's full of disinformation. Right. They, they, they basically made assumptions about things they read in a book and assumed it meant, Oh yeah, you see, Webb really was a leader when he wasn't. So if you look at their scientific American piece, again, full of disinformation. Um, and so, but not only did they do that, a colleague sent me a, a message and said, Hey, you know, this particular person said the one who wrote the, the blog, the straights are here to save us. You should research why Hakeem left Florida Tech. Mm. And I called him and I was like, what do you what do they mean by that? And he said, oh, they indicated that you had a sexual harassment case, a Title IX case against you and at your previous university. I actually laughed. Right. When he told me that I'm like, ha, OK, you know, I, I, I feel like the only defense I ever need is how I live my life. Right. People see how I live my life. I don't have to go out there verbally defending myself because who's going to believe stuff like that? Right. Mm. Oh, was I wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, was I wrong? Yeah. I, yeah. I want to ask you about these allegations, because uh, yeah. as, the, as the New York Times reported, this in, involved allegations that you mishandled a federal grant and sexually harassed a woman at Florida Tech. The New York Times reported Florida Tech did a thorough investigation, found zero evidence of this. How did you respond to those allegations at the time? Well, there weren't allegations, right? So basically what happened is a student, you know, the, the Karen phenomenon exists, right? So there was a student who, who, you know, not only falsely accused me, they falsely accused the male and a female professor, right? From what I heard from the department chair immediately after I left. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people knew this was an issue. And so basically when the allegation was raised, there was no title nine investigation. It seemed to be crazy. And it was crazy, right? And so uh, the, the tiniest bit of, because think about it. If there is some harassed woman, where is she? Right? There is no harassed woman. That does not exist. You know, there is a harassed man because the reality is, you know, if you're a creep, right? We have these historic, you know, in recent times, we have these professors who have been outed for their sexual harassment, Okay. And if you're a creep, you leave a long trail of creepiness behind you. And not only that, the opportunity to be a creep 
you know, I as a researcher, I take my students all around the world, male, male and female. I took two women to um, Ghana to, in 2006, right? I went with a group of women to Cairns, Australia in 2012. I take students on, you know, let's live on a mountaintop for a week, right? I bring my students to my home. When I go on summer research programs, I take them camping, right? We go to baseball games together. If you're a creep, there's so many opportunities to be a creep. And you would leave a trail of creepiness behind you. But mm. I, you know, if you ever read my memoir, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey Through Space and Time, what you'll see is I was a victim of a lot of creepiness growing up, right? So, you know, you know that, that tends to work out one way or the other. One way is you become a creep yourself, but the other way is you hate it. And that's the type of dude I am, right? Mm -hmm. I am the defender of the vulnerable, not the, the guy trying to take advantage of the vulnerable. But they didn't have any way of knowing that. They didn't know who they were actually. Like, I would tell you the extent of it, Tara. This might be hard to believe, but I am such a nerd. I'm such a shy guy. And I have such a fear of rejection kind of guy that I've in my adult life, I have never asked a woman for her number. I've never asked a woman out on a date. Luckily, women love me, right? I mean, if it, weren't, if it weren't for that fact, I probably would have never dated in my life. But, you know, that's the reality. And it's the same as a professor, right? You step in front of the class and you're the smart guy. I don't care who you are. Students are going to be attracted to you and come on to you. You get close to students. So if you're going to be a creep, there are so many opportunities to be creepy, right? But I am the opposite of that guy. So, you know, when they tell their story, so many people are willing to believe it because why? So many people are ready to think that every guy is a creep, right? <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. You know, I'll tell you what it is. Just like there are people who feel like they are deputized to keep undesirables out of their neighborhood and it leads to things like the deaths of Trayvon Martin or Maude Arbery, we now have people in our field who feel like they're deputized to get rid of abusers and harassers. And what you see is that in that, you know, okay, be that. That's great. But you better be sure you're doing your research and knowing what you're saying, right? Mm. As scientists, we have strong criteria for what we accept is true, right? The name is rigor. And if you ask me, if you're going to make allegations that are going to negatively impact somebody's life, destroy their career in life, it's an even higher standard of rigor that you need to apply to make sure you're right. And so in this case, they didn't do that for James Webb, who's dead, or for me, who is alive. Mm. So as, as we say, as the New York Times had reported that this was Florida Tech did look into this um, quite extensively. I, I want to ask you about the fallout for you personally and professionally, yeah. because what what sort of distinguishes this case from, uh, you know, professional infighting and heated scientific debate is is these personal allegations yes. and, and the, the timber of that. What has been the fallout for you for taking part in this debate about the name of this telescope? Well, I'll give you one example. So when I published my memoir in 2021, there was a uh, very popular author from the same state as me, Casey Lehman, who wrote the book Heavy, right? So he agreed to blurb my book, which would have been a big boost to my book, right? He's just won a MacArthur Prize, right? So the week when it's due, I called him. He said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do it now. He was eager to do it previously. And I was like, oh, why not? He said, because I told a friend who that I was going to do this and they asked me not to do it. So what type of monetary impact does that have on me? Right? Because I didn't get this 
you know, prized blurb for my book as he agreed. Um, another thing is right before the article came out, I started to see other people who I had never met in my life passing this information on only because every time they did a campaign to say this man did something that he did not do, I would follow up in Twitter and say, oh, please read this because, you know, you're being led astray by these people. So this other professor, she said something like, you know, if you see somebody, um, you know, defending an abuser, mind you, there's no evidence of James Webb being an abuser at all, saying an abusive word or doing an abusive act then they're an abuser themselves, right? So it was not even veiled. Previously, they were making veiled comments. Now, mm-hmm. you know, she's naming me explicitly. So, you know, you have this sort of like network. We call it a whisper campaign in our field, right? Of mm-hmm. people, you know, it, it basically boils down to like high school gossip type stuff. But if you're a scientist, you should have a higher standard of truth, right? Not I heard this, so therefore it is true. And I'm I'm curious. I mean, there's no upside uh, for you personally. Absolutely in, not yeah. into this conflict. None. No. Why, None. Why did you do it? Why did you Why did you get involved? Well, it was it was two main reasons, right? So the first was when I discovered that he did not do it. I thought again about you know what if it was me? What if it was you know this racist thing? And you know, and I'm hearing this. I, I feel like you're tortured by the name. If you think this about this person, every time you hear this name, you feel like NASA and your country are giving you a big middle finger, right? So I'm thinking, just like I said in my article, oh, he didn't do it because believe me, if the answer had had been the opposite, what do you think I would be saying, right? I stand on the truth. I stand on principle. I stand on honor, right? So when I found out that, you know, whatever the case was, positive or negative, what is the right action to take? Well, the right action to take is, and so I'll tell you what I did also. I sent it to several people to read ahead of time, you know, and five of those, five or six of those individuals were themselves members of the LGBT community. One, an astronomer, one, a close family member, one, a close colleague who's a big script writer in Hollywood. Um, and to a person, they said, dude, you have to publish this. You have to publish this. Uh, and, and, you know, I listened to them, right? Because I wanted people to be free of that burden, right? And and these people, they couldn't take the, uh you know, the activists, you know, they they wanted it. It was more about them, their brand, building up their clout within the community than it was setting their community free from this lie. But instead, they decided to incite the community. So they doubled down. Right. And they went on a, a, a media campaign. And since the, the New York Times has come, articles have come out, they've done the same thing. Right. They gaslight, redoubled down and claim that, you know. Oh, you know, James Webb is this bad guy because he was a manager. Now they're saying he didn't. Okay. He didn't do anything specific, but he was a manager. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Our next big telescope is called the Nancy Grace Roman telescope. Nancy Grace Roman was a manager at NASA with Webb. She was head of astronomy, right? So their claim is that anybody who was in management is, is complicit, right? Mm-hmm. In, in this lavender scare. Yeah. So why don't they ever mention Nancy Grace Roman? Right. It does not seem like they are actually sincere in their convictions. It seems more like it's an identity thing. It seems more like it's a, you know, something personal rather than being about the facts and being about the community of people, of vulnerable people. 
I, I want to read a quote from your book. Uh, I did reread your memoir over the weekend, oh, thank you. which was, yeah. you know, we talked uh, about your memoir when it came out and rereading it. again. I was really struck by, by a quote here. This is from, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Ibn al-Haytham, uh, mathematician. Yep, Ibn al-Haytham. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mathematician, astronomer. Uh, he says, if learning the truth is a scientist's goal, then he must make himself the enemy of all he reads. He should also suspect himself so that he may avoid falling into either prejudice or leniency. This, of course, an argument for skepticism, for critical thinking, for self-searching, for rigorous debate. When you look at the scientific community as a whole right now, how do you think that, that ideal is holding up? It's a person-by-person -person analysis, right? And there's definitely groupthink. So I, I saw this as a very young scientist, okay? So some, you know, when you're doing research, you're doing, you're investigating at the edges, OK, so a lot of things you're not really like you don't have a clear view of them. And so what you do is you model it. Like, for example, there are people who look at the planet, the atmospheres of planets around other stars. Right. You don't get a clear view of that. You can't take a sample of the atmosphere and put it in your, you know, gas chromatograph and measure what it's made of. You know, you have to use light. You have to make a lot of inferences. And so what happens is is that everybody will interpret the data in a particular way. And then you might have some people who are on the fringes. They don't have a big name, you know, and they say, no, 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 this might be a better way of looking at the data. And nobody pays attention. But then you get some big name in the field, say the exact same thing, and then you see the entire field switch and interpret the data that way, right? So group think definitely does exist. But at the same time, there are, you know, so many amazing scientists out here that are true to the game, that are, you know, crossing every T and dotting every I. But the thing that's happened now in our community is that we have people who, you know, the whole activism thing, you know, there are serious people doing serious work. For example, I'm president of the National Society of Black Physicists. OK. And so in the time that I've been a physicist, starting back in the early 90s, there are people that dedicate themselves to helping this community. All right. One example is a guy named Kayvon Stassen at Vanderbilt. This guy has helped to graduate more African-Americans with astronomy degrees and with, with PhDs. Right. That's where the rubber meets the road. There's no activism other than just like a, a, an entrepreneur or a business person. Your job is to bring together the resources and the people to get the job done. That's what you do. Right. And and even myself. Right. I, I'm you know, I'm, I'm going across the world. Because for me, you know, growing up as the American version of poor, the American version of undereducated, I relate to all humans in that state. They don't have to have brown skin. They don't have to be from America. They don't have to be from Mississippi. If that's who you are, I'm here to help you out. Right. So I go all around the world doing this. But it doesn't have to be, oh, you know, you don't hear me going around like these people say things all the time like dead white man. I'm like, okay. Do you also say dead white woman? Do you also say dead black dead black woman? Do you say dead gay person? Do you say dead straight? You know, it's it's like, why create all these barriers between us? So, you know, I'm about unity. I'm about you know bringing people together around a good cause and doing good work to make it happen, not performative wokeism as they call it, right? Because that's what it that's what it primarily is. And you know, the other thing about it is is that there's a big measure of hypocrisy involved. Because the same people, you know, are also working against minority communities and, and attempting to undermine people individual by individual. 
right? So on the one hand, they go out and say, hey, look at me. And they get the, 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 the ear of people that can make a difference. And it's like, oh, I'm representing this vulnerable community, community. While people in the vulnerable community are saying, what's wrong with this person? Why are they always undermining us? Why are they attacking us individually and attacking the people that fund us, right? That's the dynamic that's occurring. Mm. I want to talk a little bit more about that dynamic, actually. But 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 first, I mean, as I said, I just reread your book. Um, and one of the other things that really struck me was that the chances of you leading the life that you now lead as a senior scientist um, were slim, given the way that you grew up. Can you give listeners just a bit of a snapshot of your backstory, just so they know what we're talking about when we talk about that? Yeah. So my family um, is from the deep south of America. Uh, my mother's family is from New Orleans. My father's family is from Mississippi. Neither of my parents graduated high school. My mother dropped out of school at uh, 16, older, pregnant with my older sister. My father dropped out of school at the age of nine. Um, and, you know, when I was four years old, they divorced. So the next decade, I lived in a new community every year and sometimes multiple times per year. And those communities were the, you know, basically what you would call the ghettos of the deep South, right? South Central Los Angeles, Houston Third Ward, Houston South Park, New Orleans East, New Orleans Ninth Ward, you know, and rural Mississippi. And I was an unprotected kid out there, you know? And so I, you know, my cousins were gangsters, (laughs) you know, went to prison for robbing banks. Uh, You know, my dad was a big drug dealer. And, you know, I became a drug dealer myself at the age of nine years old. Right. And, you know, by the time I was nine years old, I'd had a thousand fights. You know, I'm always a new kid in a bad neighborhood. Right. You have to fight. Um, and so, you know, my, my, my youth was filled with violence. OK. And the, the type of nurturing that leads to getting into a top university for a Ph.D., you know, that didn't exactly happen there. Right. The lucky thing that happened for me is I signed up for the U.S. Navy. Uh, in high school, right? As, as soon as I was eligible. And, um, you know, when I went to the Navy, I learned algebra for the first time. And that was the key thing that allowed me to actually be a science major, right? I, I used to love to read, but, you know, in order to be a scientist, you have to know mathematics really well. And the key to all mathematics is algebra. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it was a lot. I always say I made it off of hope, hustle, and help. Right. But in the meantime, you know, I have been at gunpoint many, many times. I found myself addicted to harder drugs at the ages of 21, 23, 25. I found myself homeless at points. I found myself, you know, at one point working as a janitor in a hotel. And the only way I could eat every day, you know, making four dollars an hour, I was a minimum wage by that time. The only way I could eat every day is I would come to work and walk the halls. And when people ordered room service, they put their tray outside their door when they're done. So I would eat their leftovers. Right. So, you know, I've had to fight for everything. But the other thing about it is based on the way our society works. And this is what, you know, allowed me to really relate to Webb in this case is you always face false accusations over and over and over again. You're accused of stealing. You're you're followed around the store. The number of times I have to tell you I was doing nothing in Mississippi, where the police pull me over, lay flat on the ground, search your pockets, that sort of thing. You know, I was even in a park one time, you know, and people think racially, everybody at the park was black and all the police were black. They literally lined us up and went to the first guy and just smacked that, smacked him right in the face, roughed him up and went down the line doing that. And around the fourth or fifth guy, he decided to fight back. Okay. And he saved the rest of us because they put so much energy out, you know, beating that guy that I didn't, I wasn't beaten that day. Right. Um, 
which was a funny thing. I, I found myself at gunpoint that same night yet again. But, you know, I lived that life. I lived the life of the street. I was in it from my childhood through around the age of, you know, 25, 26. And then I came out of that life. Um, and I decided, you know, to be to, to focus on being a scholar and gentleman like my mentor, Art Walker, the late great Art Walker. Mm hmm. It's interesting that you identify so much with Webb. And I, I I read that you are now close with the Webb family as a result. I of am, all. yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As a result. And and not only that, some amazing historians, <laughs> because, you know, what, so many people reached out to me immediately after the article came out. Some and, and several of them were people who know knew Webb personally. Some were historians, right? The Webb family. And now, you know, people who were um who knew people who were involved in the whole lavender scare, like this gentleman, Kameny, K-A-M-E-N-Y. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Frank Kameny. Who started yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, one of his uh, close colleagues has spoken up and said, yo, he talked about all the homophobes in uh, Washington, D.C., and James Webb was not among them, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing about this particular group of researchers, that they ignore the actual data that looks into Webb's um, character and his political positions. So, for example... Truman and the State Department, you know, the guy who actually did the the ran the the congressional committee that led to the um the report titled The Problem with Homosexuals in Government was a guy named Francis Flanagan. And his whole thing was making it about gay people or a security risk, right? And the State Department pushed back every chance they could. And they were like, no, they're no more of a threat than a guy who's cheating on his wife, than a drunk, than a gambler, right? It's the same thing. They're just a person with a secret. There's nothing intrinsically about them and their character that makes them a particular, you know, that was their fight. So this whole lavender scare thing was a part of McCarthyism. The Republican woman who's quoted as, sir, have you no shame, right? That's Margaret Chase Smith. Webb's good friend, the anti-McCarthy Republican and James Webb were close. James Webb's hero that he lauded over and over again was Mary Parker Follett, who was gay and living openly in a same-sex marriage, what they call a Boston marriage, right, at the time. And Webb lauded this woman every chance he could. And what's very well known is how he took on the Southern politicians when NASA started putting NASA centers in the South and saying, no, there will no, there will be no discrimination in hiring. I will move this sucker up to Tennessee, you know, I mean, you know, or Arkansas, right? So you see a man's character and everybody who knows him say, like this guy is, you know, if you look at Mary Parker Follett's, um, approach, she was all about being inclusive. Right. And Webb was all about being inclusive. So, you know, the idea here, the, the, the difference is, is that this was a federal government policy. Right. A federal government policy, every agency in the country. So what these people are saying is that if you worked in the federal government from 1950 to 1998, you are complicit in these events. And I don't I don't see it that way. I see the specific people who did it as being complicit. And number one is the American public, right? Number one is the American public. Then you have the Congress people, right? And you also have presidents like Eisenhower. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so much more than one person. But mm -hmm. if you're going to look at individuals, you got to look at Senators Wary and Hill from Nebraska and Alabama. You got to look at George C. What? George C. Um, what's his name? The, 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 I mentioned it earlier. 
the um who was secretary of state you gotta look at purifoy and humosign you gotta look at francis flanagan you gotta look at dewey at the state department there are so many people we know that were bad actors mm. and on an individual level and webb just was not one of them mm-hmm. the last thing i just want to ask you about is is this dynamic that you were identifying just to close um this is a dynamic I've observed a lot in elite politics. And so just leaving your particular controversy for a moment and just pulling back at the broader kind of trends right now, my experience is that a lot of these controversies often originate uh, with people who are highly educated, very influential, well-connected, pretty affluent, but see themselves as marginalized and speaking for marginalized people. And at this sort of, I, I make, you know, I sometimes call this woke politics. People hate that yeah. name. I don't know how else to yeah. talk about it. Is Does this ring true for you? And when you look at this dynamic at a whole in our culture? Oh, it absolutely is true, right? Academia is so full of it right now. It is, you know, it, I mean, it is so distasteful to me. I left academia. Right. I, I, you know, for the most part, I'm still engaged. I, I like to say I bought my freedom because I became entrepreneurial several, several years ago. So I don't rely on academia for my main income. But, you know, I still want the intellectual fulfillment that comes from the science I do. And I want the personal fulfillment that comes from interacting with these young people that are building their lives and impacting them positively. Right. You know, other things I do, I'm about to go to the state to, to Hong Kong for the Department of State. This is my fifth such trip which is diplomacy on behalf of my nation, right? I also work, have worked with the intelligence agencies, the, the military agencies, right? So, you know, there are those of us who are doing the good work on the ground and we don't lead grievance first, right? We don't, you know, we lead with building connections first. We lead with finding out what is the good work that will impact these people's lives and, you know, move them forward. Because together, you know, if I was running a nation, I want everybody in my nation to be healthy, safe, and well-educated in whatever skill fulfills them, right? And that's what I'm trying to build. That's my purpose here on life. I'm not trying, I'm not, you know, if you look at my social media or what, how I speak, I'm not into politics. I'm not into, you know, oh, it's all about me, 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 you know, to, you know, I'm selling books, right? So I got to be like, hey, look at my book. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it's it's really about you. Right. When I'm speaking to my audience, it's about them. It's not about me. It's me being useful. And I think other people, you know, are looking for, you know, all of us are looking to, to have impact and and have fulfillment and, and feel like we're doing something positive in the world. Even if you're, you know, a big time gangster. Right. You'll be like, oh, but look, I gave I fed the community, you know, and things like that. Right. And so I, I that's the that's the thing that kills me about this is that in my mind. I'm thinking that they're thinking, oh, we're doing the right thing here. This is what we should be doing. You know, this is uh, the best for humanity. And we disagree on that. But the difference is, you know, they're attacking. They're constantly on attack. And any pushback they give, they say, oh, that person's racist, homophobic, sexist, whatever. They're pushing back on me because of my identity, not the merit of my words. Right. Um, and, And, you know, let me list. I am, uh, you know, this, that, that, that. I'm a five, you know, intersecting identities that are all oppressed, even though I'm a cushy professor somewhere, right? You know, hanging out with other cushy, you know, professors in the academy. It's, it's utterly ridiculous to me. You know, I'm, I'm in the village. I'm in the hood working with people directly, right? That's what, you know, and so it, it, the, the, the bigger problem to me is that people buy into it. 
you know, people buy into it and they think, you know, and, and so what's happening right now in academia, especially in my fields of physics and astronomy is so toxic right now. Um, and, and, you know, people are, are really cowed and scared. Right. But when they chose to attack me, they didn't realize I was born canceled. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not scared of you. I, I'm, you know, tell your lies, go right ahead and let's see how it shakes out. Right. I believe that in the end, honor, truth, these things prevail. Well, Hakeem, I really appreciate you making the time to talk about all of this. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Tara. It's always good. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Oh, 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 oh,